You are listening to The Bell Post. Welcome to our next episode of our podcast. This is season two. Who would have ever dreamed we're now having a season two of The Bell Post talking about bail and criminal justice issues. Today we have a great guest and his name is Randy Cawthon. Is that correct? correct. Yes, and sir. he is the president of the North Carolina Bell Agents Association. Welcome to the Bell Post. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate you uh, offering me the invitation. I try to do a little research about people when I'm going to uh, talk to them. And I say, you have a long criminal justice uh, uh, background. I uh, worked for the Kannapolis Police Department. I started in 1971 as a patrol officer. Worked uh, for 27 and a half years and retired. When I retired, I was the assistant chief. And uh, I wasn't ready to sit at home on the couch and watch Oprah. So I had a friend who had previously been in the bail business. So he and I talked and decided to get back into it. And that was in 1999. Your criminal justice background, your background as a police officer would give you a great perspective about how bail works and, and how important it is to uh, the criminal justice system. I mean, it seems like you have almost a unique view that most people don't have. I feel like I do too. Uh, one of the, probably one of the most disheartening things to a young police officer is to invest a lot of time in an investigation. He finally develops probable cause, gets ready to make an arrest, takes him before the magistrate and the magistrate lets him sign his own recognizance and walk out. And he usually beats the officer back out on the street. So there's nothing more disheartening than that. So they, as police officers, like bail. One of the things that I really like to have about these conversations is to learn how bail operates in other jurisdictions. You know, how uh, North Carolina is similar or different to bail in Texas. So kind of what's the history of bail in, in North Carolina? Bail has been around forever. Uh, in uh, nineteen and in 2019 and 2020, we had to start stave off the uh, anti-bail systems. There was, uh, I think, uh, 17 bills introduced in 2019 and 2020 that would have either totally eliminated or basically reduced the use of bail as we know it in this state. Well, tell me, what are the different types of release that North Carolina recognizes? I know surety bail, that's us, but what other forms of release does uh, North Carolina recognize? In North Carolina, we have what they call personal recognizance. Mm -hmm. That's where a person comes in, he signs his own bond. Then we have a cash bond. With that, sometimes it requires a defendant to post nothing but cash to post that bond. And that's usually when they haven't paid for a, uh, a fine or they owe child support or something like that. A bail bondsman cannot help them with that. Uh, secondly, you have a secure bond, which they need either cash to pay or they can use property to post property or use a bail bondsman. So that's basically the way we do bail in this state. So uh, when they do a cash bond, do they have to put the whole, the total amount of the bond or just a percentage? 
the total amount. If they do a cash bond, if it's a thousand dollar bond, they put up a thousand. I know that you retired from the police officers association or from, from being a police officer. And then you uh, started this new journey of being a bondsman, but how you've been doing that long enough. You're now president of the North Carolina bail agents association. How long have you been doing this now? Since 1999. So basically just a, a fortnight. Yeah. Just a yeah. fortnight. <laughs> I love it though. Uh, to me, it's, it's one of those things that it's never the same. There's always exciting things happening. It's just always something new going on. Absolutely. Well, you know, when I was researching you, I found that even though you've been doing this just a few years, just a couple, you're already uh, on the Hall of Fame. You're a Hall of Fame inductee for the uh, for the North Carolina Bell Agents Association. Yes, sir. That was an honor. I was, I'm really proud of. Uh, our North Carolina Bell Agents Association uh, handles that, and every year they uh, take nominations and. I was fortunate enough for somebody to nominate me and I was voted in. So I'm, I'm really proud of that. Oh, you should be, you should be. I mean, it's an honor, which means you've been recognized by your fellow bondsmen. So tell me about the uh, North Carolina uh, Bell Agents Association. How active is it uh, in, in your state? In North Carolina, the Bell Agents Association, our main goal, we sponsor our lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And our lobbyist works. And so far, uh, we've introduced 30 bills since 19, uh, let me see here, 1993 when NCBAA came into existence. Since then, they've introduced 30 pieces of legislation over 200 law changes. Mm. So they've been very active. In 1993, the purpose of the Bell Agents Association, several bail agents came together and decided that the bail industry was not as lucrative or profitable as it should be because they were paying too much of their money on forfeitures and things. So at that time, they began to work with a lobbyist to get some of these laws changed. And through the lobbyist, we've been very successful our legislature, uh, quite frankly, I hate to be political, but uh, we have a Republican-led uh, legislature, and they've been very good to the bail bond industry. Oh, well, good. That's a good thing. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, I can already tell, you know, you would, you would agree with the statement that, you know, bail bondsmen are an integral part of the criminal justice system. But why? Why do you think bail bondsmen or the private, you know, the surety bail industry is such an, an important part of the criminal justice system? The main reason I think bail agents provide a pretrial release system at no cost to the taxpaying public. The average cost in North Carolina to house an inmate is $99.23 per day. Based on this formula, bail agents save the state of North Carolina approximately $2 billion per year. So billion, not million, $2 billion a year. I mean, that's not chump change, but that allows them to spend that money on other things. Absolutely. And another thing, all the money that bail agents pay in forfeitures goes to the school fund. So we're supplementing the school board's uh, budgets. 
someone had told me that before, but I had uh, forgotten it or I didn't associate it with North Carolina. Ha- has that always been the, that way in North Carolina that uh, the uh, bond forfeiture money goes to the schools? Yes, sir. And do you, uh, how has, much is that? Uh, I haven't looked at it this year. The last year I looked at it was approximately 2011. It was like $11 million across the state went into their coffers. I had a, a couple of uh, bail funds call me this year and they're like, well, you know, the time period is expired and the defendant hasn't come back. So what's next? And I'm like, uh, they're going to take your money. And so all, you know, $11 million, what that means is bondsmen did not get their defendants back. And so they had to pay the money and they paid it and it went to the schools. Yes, sir. That's, that's it. Uh, and I think that has helped us fighting the anti-bail organizations also school boards seem to be more in favor of us school board attorneys seem to work with us well you know in texas originally i think when as far back as i remember originally bond forfeiture money went to the road and bridge fund and then they changed it and so currently it goes to each county's general fund so it it just goes into the general fund for the county and I can understand why they would not want it to go to the um, road and bridge because the county's already funding that. But I, I really like the idea of, of funding the schools with it because that's, I agree with you. I think you have a ready-made ally when you come under, I would say, irrational attack. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we work together closely, so I like it like that. Yeah, I do too. I, I like that a lot. But, I mean, that's a good idea. We've had a lot of allies at the legislature, which are, we call them, you know, we have the ones that'll say they're going to support us and they'll support us behind the scenes, but they don't want to be kissing anywhere in public. You know, they don't want to show any public, <laughs> public displays of affection. But, you know, we had an interim hearing this summer. And for the first time, we had some law enforcement groups, not just using our, using our name. You know, I agree with the bondsman guy. You know, the bondsman got spoke person that just was here or i'm just going to repeat the numbers that the bonding group just gave you just right before me so that was kind of a first for us and i really like that too when you start getting allies like that that's pretty powerful that's strong yes sir i agree (laughs) another another thing i i saw a figure yesterday that uh, said bail bondsmen recover 88 percent of their skips people mm -hmm. that have missed court and when we recover those, that's at no cost to the taxpayer. We invest our own funds to go out, hunt this person, travel to get them, bring them back and present them for trial. Well, and I think what you're, you know, those, the points you're making on that is that, you know, that no cost to the county is, is, or to the state is really important. But also when you're talking about the level of supervision that we provide and the incentive that we have to get them to court, there's no way a state agency or a county agency can emulate that. I mean, they just can't. They don't, they don't have the training, but they don't have the incentive because we have so many, we have reasons to go look for people and we have deadlines to get them that don't apply when it's a state agency or a county agency providing supervision. And so that's the reason why I would say our secret sauce is the state can't afford to pay for the level of supervision that we provide. Absolutely. Our law enforcement officers are so overburdened here with just answering calls and calls for service and everything. They don't have time to invest in hunting uh, 
skips like we do. Well, and if you just compare and contrast, you know, in North Carolina, you've got a person that's on your bond and you've got somebody that's on a personal bond or what we call it, or a personal recognizance bond, what y'all would call it. I mean, mm -hmm. you're making them check in with you. And, you know, depending on the risk, you may have them come into your office to sign. You're giving them, you know, you may have an app that where they check in that gives you their D GPS location, but you're, you're seeing them notifications of their court date. And then you got somebody that's on their personal recognizance and they're supposed to rem remember when their court date is. And you can see why the failure to appear rate is at least twice for a personal recognizance bond than what it is for us. You, it just makes common sense. These are problem children to begin with. They just, they're having trouble fitting in society. And so they at least need somebody holding their hand or, you know, you got the gang members that we need to provide us extra special uh, supervision to. And you can see readily why we have such a lower failure to appear rate. And I just think it gets lost in this discussion about fairness. Yes, I agree. Uh, you know, they want to bring up the thing innocent until proven guilty as they try to fight bail, but that's really not applicable. So, yeah, you know, I was uh, listening to a police officer and I think you, you, again, you have the great perspective to say that. And that's what he was saying is look, look, you know, that's the presumption of innocence applies at trial, not at what assurance are you giving to the court that you're going to show up to answer these criminal charges. I mean, that concept dates all the way back to the Magna Carta where the King had the right to charge you before the Magna Carta and just hold you. And if he never called the case for trial, you never got out of jail. And the Magna Carta was the first time uh, the court, the judge, I mean, sorry, the King said, I'm not going to hold you. You have to be released, but you have to give assurances. And that now comes all the way forward. That's where bail comes from. And so when you look at, you know, North Carolina law or Texas law about the factors for releasing someone on bail. Not one of the factors is presumption of innocence. It's mostly severity of the crime. And are you going to come back? Absolutely. That's, that's correct. Yeah. I was on a panel oh, last month with, um, you know, one of these woke groups and they kept saying, you know, presumption of innocence, presumption of innocence. And I finally repeated what the sheriff said. And, you know, that suddenly they were stumped. They didn't have anything else to say. And it's like, you know, I mean, it's not that this is not a question. This is settled law that this is not one of the things you consider on releasing somebody from jail. So, you know, you may have a good talking point, but it's not the law. Absolutely. So let's talk about, you know, bail in North Carolina and let's talk about, you know, a licensing, you know, in Texas, we have two different uh, regulatory schemes for bail. We have the smaller counties, what which, which we call the criminal code counties. And then in we have something very unique to Texas. If your county is larger than 110,000, you're a bail bond board county. And so mm -hmm. you have to, to be a license there. You have to go from county to county, all the counties you want to operate in, you have to get a license from each county and you have to have an office there. But in researching, uh, North Carolina, it looks like y'all are all regulated by the, a state agency. That's correct. Department of Insurance regulates us. There's actually three types of bail bondsmen. One of them is called an accommodation bondsman. Now, that person is not licensed by the Department of Insurance. He can sign bonds as long as he has the collateral to back it up in property or cash. Does he get a but, ratio at all? 
Uh, no, he cannot collect a fee. No, no. Oh, he can't collect a fee. He cannot collect a fee. Uh, he is freelancer. He's not uh, regulated or controlled by department of insurance, but there are some laws that he can violate, uh, so, well, so when I was talking about a rate, a ratio, like in Texas, you put up 50,000 and you can write up to 500,000 in bonds. It, does he have anything like that? Uh, he cannot go over the amount of capital he has. Ah, so his, his net worth would be his limit. So he's kind of a one-to-one -one limit. Are yes, those sir. mostly uh, family members that post those type of bonds? Absolutely. It, it would be a family member or a close friend or somebody like that. Okay. The other two are we have a surety bondsman who work, writes bonds through a, an insurance company, and you have a professional bondsman who writes bonds on his own money. He can uh, write up to one twelfth of, of his total amount on one person. Uh, he can't go over what he has up. So his total outstanding liability is still tied one to one with his out, outstanding capital. Yes, sir. And each bond, so he cannot he cannot exceed one twelfth of his um, capital for an individual. Yes, sir. Right, so it sounds like to me, North Carolina is mostly insurance company bonds or agents. It is. When I first started, I was a professional bondsman and had the money put up. And surety companies were not as prevalent as they are today in North Carolina. And uh, as time went by, their rates came down. So actually, to me, it's more profitable to be a surety bondsman than a professional at this point in time, because the surety companies have become competitive on the rates they give to prospective uh, people that work for them. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of other advantages today that probably weren't there 10, 20 years ago as well. You know, I mean, I've noticed insurance companies that have recovery teams that are kind of in-house and that gives them a leg up, I think, in the market because they can, I mean, they can actually take on riskier agents that other insurance companies couldn't do. And then you've got insurance companies that have their own software, uh, proprietary software for uh -huh. tracking uh, bonds and the open liability that you write. And I think those are all invaluable things. And I know there's all kinds of other things that are available, but I think we have, that's, those are just a couple of examples of the advantages that insurance company kind of bring to the table. We probably have approximately 80 professional bondsmen in this state at this time. And we have approximately 2000 surety bondsmen. Oh, wow. So 2000, so when you said 80, that's, uh, we would call those property bondsmen in Texas. Okay. And, and y'all call them professional bonds yes, and then uh, agents we call we call them agents too we have we have two different types of licenses but they're for a bail bond board and then the sheriff in a criminal code county can approve individuals or agents for insurance companies but you know the interesting thing in texas is for in a bail bond board county for every agent license that the insurance company has to put up a fifty thousand dollar cd in the county and we can license somebody after they're 18. It looks like y'all start at 21. Yes, sir. So what's we, the licensing uh, procedures? We, uh, you have to apply. Well, first of all, you take your uh, pre-licensing course. And there's two providers in this state. Uh, we have a, a company called Bell Academy, who is a privately owned. And you have the Bell Agents Association, who is a nonprofit. 
the Bell Agents Association, we make our money through membership dues, pre-licensing course, and continuing education. Mm-hmm. That That is our total amount of funding. So tell me about this test, though. I mean, I, you know, we don't have a test to question your competence or that you know what you're doing. What I mean, what kind our of questions pre- would be on this test? The pre-licensing course is 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to pass a test in the pre-licensing course itself, and it has 100 questions. And then you apply to the Department of Insurance for a license. They'll do a criminal background uh, on the person, and they check civil and criminal matters to make sure you don't have either one. And if not, then they approve you for a license. You then go and take the state test. It also is 100 questions. And you have two tests. You have one for professional bondsmen and one for surety bondsmen. Oh, wow. So whichever you want to be. And you can actually be both. I, I have been both. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that that test is 100 questions also. How long, how long is the license good for? Uh, the license is good for a year. We have to renew every year. And, and the renewal process is just a, a short form renewal application. Yes. As long as you don't have any prohibitors, you have your continuing education. You don't have to retake the test. No, you never retake the test. You just reapply for your license every year with three hours continuing ed and you're good to go. There are some similarities between y'all and Texas on, you know, this, uh, you don't have a prohibited criminal conviction. So I don't know how far back y'all go. But again, it depends on the type of county. In Belbonbor County, you can't have a felony post-1972. But in a criminal code, I think it's post-2012, you can't have a pr- criminal conviction. But I, what I saw is you just can't have a, a a felony conviction. It may sound like it kind of goes back to the time of the, uh, Noah. That's it. Uh, if you have a felony conviction, you're not likely to get a license. Well, wow. see, the difference in Texas is our our constitution won't let you apply a law retroactively. So if it says you have can't have a felony conviction, it's always been interpreted on a go forward basis. You can't look back. Uh-huh. And so when we're saying 2012 forward or 1972 forward, that's the year the statute was passed. Okay. But I can't, so that's what I thought y'all had that difference when I saw that and. Uh, but now I also saw that y'all have some extra limitations on first year license holders. Yeah. Our first year. And, and that's something we just started because we had a problem with so many young bondsmen coming out and, you know, with 12 hours of education about a subject that it takes you years to learn, uh, they were running into so many problems and so many complaints. So, Department of Insurance had a, a some legislation passed where now a new licensee has to work under a bondsman for 12 months. And at first, that was all it said. So you, you might have a supervising agent 100 miles away and he'd never see the person he was supervising. Now they've tightened it down to where that person must work out of the same place of business as his supervisor for 12 months. And that supervisor is responsible for that person and their actions. So 
who's responsible for the bonds? Is the supervisor responsible for the bonds for the first year? Well, the actual uh, bail agent that writes it would be responsible, mm -hmm. but the supervising agent is responsible if that if they do something pro improper under licensing. Yeah, absolutely, yes, sir. Uh, I like that. Well, we have something similar, but you have to have a year's uh, apprentice before you apply. So we kind of reverse it. You have to have a year's one year's work experience of 30 hours a week in the pre in for a year in the last two years before you apply. So we make you have that before you apply. Y'all do it the first year after their license, but it's very simple. I, I really like yours better, actually. Uh, well, it only applies in the Belmont counties. It doesn't apply in the criminal code. I mean, we call, I, I make jokes, but I call the criminal code counties because they've been around forever. The, you know, the old West and, you know, in the old yeah. West, there are no rules. And so if in doubt, if we're talking about a criminal code County, the default answer is, well, there's probably no rule. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about when, once you're licensed, you've been doing this for more than a year and let's, um, you know, give me some insights about the process. And I want to talk about, you know, from different perspectives, the posting of the bond, the managing and giving people, you know, uh, supervising and getting people to court. And then I want to talk about what you do about forfeiture and then post forfeiture. So walk me through the process. Like what, when you have somebody who needs a bond, what's the process in, that you go through? We have an office. My office happens to be right in front of the courthouse, so it's pretty convenient. Uh, but we have the people that want to acquire a bond for the person in jail come to the office. We have the paperwork we fill out here. In North Carolina, you can charge up to 15% as a premium on the bond. It's very doubtful you will get 15%, especially on a large bond. With 2,000 bail agents in this state and only 100 counties, you can imagine the competition is pretty fierce. My goal is to get 10% of the bond. Uh, Does the state, the state says you can't charge more than 15%. Does it say, hey, you have to get all of it before you post the bond? Does it care whether you make a payment plan? No. Uh, it just says I can't charge more than 15%. I can do it for 10%. I could do it for free if I wanted to. Sure. And you but, can, you can do a small part or part of it as a payment and the initial payment and then do a payment plan. Yes, sir. We can do credit. Right. Now there are some rules and regulations that go along with the credit specific things we can do and not do. And one thing we have to have a memorandum of agreement, sure. which states, when their payment's due, how much their payment is, and what happens if they don't make the payments. And we have to go by that memorandum of agreement. If they violate it, we can surrender them on okay. the bond, put them back into jail, and not return whatever funds we've collected. That's very interesting because, you know, we've had uh, over time, I would say the, pro you know, the, Texas has taken various positions on that, but we, we teach bondsmen that, you know, you can't surrender a bond for like, for like a payment. In fact, um, you know, at one time I've actually stood in front of a judge and said, judge, if you're going to put them in jail for not paying you, then why don't you put them in jail for not paying me? <laughs> but you know, in Texas, that. they don't put them in jail anymore for not paying the County. So if they can't put them in jail for not paying them, them then they're sure as hell not going to put them in jail for not paying me. Mm, that's correct. But I like that. So, but, but that's the reason why I like that is the state has set a policy that says, you know, 
we don't want more than 15% pay, but we don't want people skiting on, uh, kiting on their agreements. And if they're not, then we're giving the bondsman the right to surrender that bond for a lack of payment. Yes, sir. Do you usually seek an indemnitor or do you have a certain size bond that you want uh, a family member involved or what, what's your, uh, what's your thinking on that? We have an indemnitor on 99.9% of our bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, it can be a family member or friend. Uh, I really like family members better uh, as an indemnitor. I, I think I've had more success with that type of agreement than with especially a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. They miss court. I call the girlfriend. She says, oh, I, I won't offer that bond. You know, we broke up two weeks ago, so I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it anymore. I said, well, I wish it worked that way. Uh, yeah. I'd have a bunch more bonds I'd like to do the same thing with, but we own it. So uh, I need your help in locating. I think that's a good point. And I've, I've used that with my, you know, my children, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter's 22 now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, when she's growing up during the difficult years, I'm like, you know, we're your family. Your family will stick with you the longest of anybody. And, and I think you can attest in, you know, the criminal justice system, Johnny can get in trouble enough times that he's going to run off all of his friends first. They'll be the first people to abandon him because, you know, they're just hanging around having fun. The family's mm-hmm. going to stick with him the longest. So they're going to know his whereabouts, but he can do something bad enough enough times that he can run off his family too. And that, that's your career criminals. They've, they've run, they've run through all their friends and family and they, because they just won't turn around. And those are the people who need to stay in jail. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, we have two ways to get off of a bond. Uh, we can surrender them for non-payment, but if we, we surrender them and, and by that, I mean, before they breach the bond, sure, mm-hmm. uh, we can surrender them for failing to pay the rest of the premium for changing addresses without notifying us for physically hiding from us. If they leave the state without our permission, if they violate any order of the court and they fail to disclose anything to us on the application, or if they lie to us, what about if they don't report? Is that a grounds uh, to surrender? We can make that a requirement and and successfully surrender them. But it's just kind of a given that they've got to report to us. Sure. What is your policy about reporting? My business, we don't require them to report if it's less than $10,000. Okay. Because we just have so many small bonds that, it just wouldn't be practical. I'd have to hire two people just to, to make the contacts. Uh, on the bonds, 10000 and above, we contact them every two weeks, have a telephone conversation with them, just make sure they're available for court and all that. It's basically up to their attorney, and we help too, to help them keep up with their court dates. Sure. So does the courts give y'all uh, copies of the court dates or does that just go to them? And so when they're checking in, they're telling you their court date. Well, we have the state of North Carolina has given us the ability to access the, mm-hmm. uh, they call it ACES. Sure. Uh, it's our state maintained record system. 
So at any time, 24-7, I can, from my office, go in the state system and see where their case is at in the system and if they have a court date. When you are doing that, do you all check each case? You don't have a way to do it in bulk? No, we have to check each case individually or each person. So let's talk about, you know, do bondsmen, do y'all have the right to arrest in in the state of North Carolina? We do. We can arrest people we have on bond. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, congratulations. I think Texas, they don't. Our bondsmen don't have that right. And I wish, I think they should have it. Uh, But that, I mean, you should have that right to arrest people you have on bond. If a defendant misses court, the judge issues an order for arrest. Law enforcement can serve that, or we can't serve that order for arrest, but we can pick them up wherever they are, bring them back, and have a law enforcement officer in our jurisdiction serve the order for arrest, put them back into jail. Yeah. Another thing, as I said before, on a surrender, if there's one of those seven reasons, or really any reason at all you don't feel comfortable you can arrest that person and put him back into jail. But unless it's one of those seven reasons I described earlier, you probably going to have to give his money back. Yeah. I saw that you have the right to arrest when you, when you file a surrender. So you can pick them up, take them to jail and Hey, here's my surrender. Uh, And that's, that's unique. We do not have that in Texas. That works well for us. Uh, I mean, we have the ability to surrender a bond. I mean, we can we we have two ways to surrender in Texas. We have a we call it a seventeen sixteen affidavit, and it's really just a notification, sheriff. This little Johnny's been rearrested. Here's where he is. Verify it. We're our bonds discharged, but we're responsible for re- uh, return costs. The other one is a request for a warrant, which is very similar to what you've talked about, where we want a warrant so we can go uh, so we can go get them arrested. We don't have the ability to arrest, but uh-huh. we we can end up having a fight over whether our cause was whether we had sufficient cause for the request for a warrant. And mm-hmm. so we can have fights over that and uh, fight over whether we have to return premium in Belmont County. So that's very similar as well. So if, when you're considering writing a really risky bond, which I don't know what that would be in your mind, but what is the thought process there? My total thought process is number one, do I think he'll go to court? Mm-hmm. And number two, Can I find him if he don't? Uh, When I started in the bail industry 23 years ago, coming from law enforcement, I knew a lot of the people we were dealing with already. And over the years, it became their kids and now their grandkids that I'm dealing with. But also, we live in an area where there's a lot of transient people. Uh, A lot of people from the north like our weather better, so they're moving in. And we have to be careful with that because they commit a very minor crime and take off back where they were. So we try to be careful with those type bonds. You know, one of the things, problems that we have in Texas is, you know, you would think a felony bond would be more risky than a misdemeanor bond. But when you're talking about different states, if, if they leave Texas, you know, Texas doesn't extradite for misdemeanors you know, we've got a riskier situation if you're dealing with an out-of-state person on a, on a misdemeanor bond. Same here. We will not extradite on misdemeanors. And depending on the district attorney, a lot of them won't extradite on felonies. 
Wow. So, well, we what we have what we found is we can approach the DA and and sometimes get them to uh, extradite for a misdemeanor, but we have to pay for the return cost, which the statute says that anyway. And we'd mm-hmm. much rather pay a tenth as return cost than a hundred percent to the uh, schools. <laughs> Sometimes that's a negotiation we do and telling the district attorney, if you'll enter them, we'll pay for the cost. And that seems to help some. We have a statute that requires us to pay the cost. And uh, so we're like, why, why do you care? It's not going to cost you anything. You're going to pass that on to us. Yes. But they're like, no, no, we're not going to do it. And then there's other times where they're like, oh, we want, we want the body. We want the body. We want the body. Where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the body? Mm-hmm. So when, okay. So you've got somebody on bond. And, you know, I know the insurance companies, they'll have, you know, what we call large bond approval. So that's an extra oversight. So yes. you've decided you want to post the bond and then the insurance companies will come in with some oversight saying, well, you got to get large bond approval. And I, I think that's something that counties don't realize exists. I mean, it's something they never see. So we mm-hmm. have to go through kind of a presentation to the insurance company. Hey, this is why we think this is a good bond please approve it. And that's those larger bonds have already gone through that when we're posting those. Uh, same thing here. We, uh, I write for a company out of Maryland. I've been with them my entire career in, uh, in bail. I prepare it as best I can with all the information. If it's over a hundred thousand dollars, I submit it to them and they either say yay or nay, or you need this or that. Okay, so someone's out on bond with you. They've been reporting, and they've got a court date, and they and you think they're going, and they don't show up. How quickly do you find out that they did not appear? I'll find out if it's one I've been watching closely and had some some uh, thought about that they might not come. I would I'll find out that afternoon. I'll check the the court docket. Tell me, what are the rules? What's the rules in, in, in North Carolina after someone fails to appear in court? There, we really don't have any rules. There's no set time. <clears throat> the clerk usually has the order for arrest entered by the next morning, and it's available either to law enforcement or we can also uh, you know, go out and, and make that arrest, but then we have to get law enforcement to serve the order for arrest. But under North Carolina law, is there a time period where if you uh, get them back within that that time, you have you owe a, l- a lesser amount than the full amount of the bond? Actually, from the day the forfeiture is issued, we have 150 days to find them. Mm-hmm. If we find them during that period of time, we file what is called a set-aside. And that will get us off the bond. We're finished with it. And you don't owe anything, not even, you know, not a small amount. Correct. Now, if we pay a forfeiture, we have three years to apply to the court. If we make the arrest, we continue to look for him after we've paid it. We find him, we bring him back. We can apply to the court to get our money back. So 150 days, that's for misdemeanors or felonies. Correct. So like in Texas, we have one number, 180 days for misdemeanors, and then we have 270 for felonies. And so, but we have something similar, but we still, if we get them back, we're exonerated on the bond forfeiture, but we still owe what we call court costs. And that can be 350, 450, $450 per case. So you can imagine you post a $500 misdemeanor bond and they fail to appear for court. You're going to end up paying 350, $450 in court costs if, if you get them back. 
timely. If you don't, you're going to owe the full amount of the bond plus court costs. And so, you know, the court costs can kill you. I see. I don't like your law. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've had a couple of cases where we've argued, you know, they've really interpreted the civil filing fees to apply to bond forfeiture cases, even though all the courts in Texas have held bond forfeitures or criminal cases. I've argued the issue before the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals once, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and they uh, they they ruled that the courts of appeals were all improperly charging the filing fee, but they just put off for another day the uh, deciding whether the uh, trial courts were. And it's just because it's so political uh, and, and we've not been able to get it resolved since. So I don't know if we ever will, but I like that. We have, we have a similar process after with a judgment, we pay it. We have up to two years after the date of judgment, if we get them rearrested where we can file what we call an equitable bill of review and we can ask for the court in its discretion to give you all or part of your money back. What about, is it discretionary or are they just required it for three years? If you are the one that got them arrested. It is discretionary. And on top of that, the word they use, uh, school board attorneys really like this is extraordinary cause. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to uh, explain to the court my extraordinary work that I did to bring this person back. And that can be difficult. So when you're arguing return, are you arguing against school's attorneys or the DA? School board attorney. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're never going to win it. You're never going to win a discretionary fight. Judge, look at these children and tell them to give back this money. (laughs) I had a case. My county's a small county. We're just north of Charlotte. Uh, which is a large city, but I went down to the Eastern part of the state trying to get $10,000 back because I'd made two trips to New York, had a lot of money invested in hunting this man and brought him back. And one of the things is, as the school board was doing his argument to the judge, he says, your honor, here comes a man from the big city. Now I live in a small town saying he's coming down here trying to snatch school books out of our children's hands. Yeah, I can see. Man, I can't win this. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I would think if you were arguing with the DA, I've had some success with doing a prepackaged deal where, okay, I haven't found them. My time period's expiring. So, but here's my extraordinary, you know, extraordinary reason why there was a delay. So, why don't you, let's make a deal. If I get them back in the next year, I have two, but let's, I'll shorten it to a year. You'll give mm-hmm. me 50 cents on the dollar back. So uh, I've, I've been successful a couple of times of negotiating that, then filing a motion for a new trial. And then before jurisdiction expires, we get him. And so we're really amending the judgment back uh, down to the uh, agreed bill of review costs without ever having to pay it. So I yeah. have gotten credit, but I don't know if you could do that because you're arguing we- against the wrong attorney. With the school board attorney, he has the authority to negotiate. In other words, if I had a large bond, I, I could say, you know, hey, if I give you 50000 and never try to, to uh, file a remittance on it to get the money back, would you agree to that? Some will. Uh, you know, you have an opportunity to make that, that offer anyway. Sure. I like that. Yeah, because it's all about getting creative uh, when you're trying to mitigate your losses and we're mm-hmm. trying to get people back and you're going to have counties that uh, you're all they care about is the money. If you're like Texas and you have counties that really wants people back and it's really finding out which what's, what's that County want and, 
and trying to live under those rules. We have a case here called State versus Locklear, and it basically says the goal of the bail industry is to provide the defendant back to court to stand trial, not to supplement the school funds. That's what so, we have a case similar that says it's not a moneymaker for the state. It's uh-huh. intended to get people to court. And so if you get people to court, you should reward them. But I've also had situations where the state was offering, you know, the county was offering 50 cents on the dollar back. And I thought we worked so hard. We deserve more. And I mm-hmm. went and had a two hour hearing and the judge listened. And he's like, Mr. Good, I agree with you a hundred percent. You worked your tail off and I think your client deserves something back. I'm going to give you 50 cents on the dollar back. And I'm like, well, crap, judge. That's what I already had that coming in the door. <laughs> and you're like, well, I got greedy. I got greedy. I like it. Uh, before we started, we were talking briefly about the legislative sessions and, and the legislature in North Carolina. But we, I kind of want to uh, kind of touch on that before we kind of wind down. But talk to me about the, the uh, uh, how is the, the bail industry and the North Carolina uh, Bail Agents Association, how do they engage with the legislature? Through our lobbyists. We have, uh, since the beginning of, of the Bell Agents Association, we've had lobbyists involved with us. And why is and a lobbyist so important? Because that is our conduit for change in the legislature. Well, uh, the way I like we, to say it is that's the person that gets us in the door to tell our story. He not only, he occasionally gets us in the door, but he takes us with him to have to testify you know, in a committee hearing or something like that. But basically, he has been so effective, uh, we haven't even had to go. And he's been very wow. successful. Wow. I, I'd like to have a legislative session like that. <laughs> you you mentioned in 19, uh, 2019 and 2020, y'all had a bunch of bills filed against you. Talk about that. We have a lady that uh, is a professor at one of the major colleges here who has made it her mission in life to eliminate bail. And she has brought in the Civil Liberties Union uh, and several other organizations to fight bail. And she really fought very hard in 2019 and even 2020. And like I said, uh, they introduced 17 bills in those two years through the legislature that would have either completely eliminated bail or basically crippled it where it wouldn't be profitable for you to do it. And did any of those bills get legs? I mean, how did you slow those down? Our lobbyists. When these people come in and they want to eliminate bail, you know, they, you know, look at the, like the New Jersey plan where they have a statewide pretrial release department that they create. I mean, that's cost prohibitive to, most of the most of the states because mm-hmm. i mean new jersey had to do a statewide tax increase to pay for that i mean i mean they're trying to save money not spend more money but if you so if you do a get rid of bail and you don't spend the money that you would have to spend to partially replace the report uh, the supervision we do because you'll never replace the supervision we do Absolutely. but it still would have i mean what would be the impact if that that were to happen on the criminal justice system I think it would be just like New York. I think crime would uh, would go through the roof, and 
one thing I heard on the TV, uh, I think yesterday, they talked about how now juveniles uh, up from 16 to 18 are really committing a lot of violent crime. And we recently, up until two years ago, a 16-year-old could be arrested here and placed in an adult jail. Mm-hmm. And two years ago, they changed it to 18. And in my opinion, our juvenile crime has increased here. What these gang members have learned is they can get one of these juveniles to commit the crime and nothing happens to them. I heard someone from the Vera Institute come in and talk to some judges and said, and they just made this statement like it's like it's just okay. They were they were saying, well, any uh, anything you change to from the private surety bail is going to bring with it a 40% failure to appear rate. And that's okay. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like a 40% failure to appear rate. We're seeing the impact of that in New York and California, Harris County, Texas, a 40% failure to appear rate is chaos is Mm -hmm. backlogs beyond belief. And we already have that from the pandemic. That means you cannot get cases resolved. And what does that mean? We know that means decriminalization because you have to dismiss cases. Yes, absolutely. And that's um, going to be perceived as a green light to commit more crime. To me, they have, these groups have tried to replace the victim status to the defendant, and they don't really care about the actual true victim of that crime. They yeah, I agree with that. I, I think what I've heard or what I've kind of been saying lately is, when you see or hear bail reform, they're not talking about reform. They're talking about decriminalization. I mean, Absolutely. look at New York. I mean, look at California. They changed certain theft from felony to a misdemeanor. And then the DAs just all say, well, we're not going to prosecute that anymore. If the, what had been on the ballot is we're going to decriminalize theft under $950, that would have failed and failed miserably. So they didn't do that. They backdoored it. And now they've got people moving out. And they were first moving out because uh, of the theft. Now they're moving out because it's not safe. And then you've got Portland saying, oh, we're going to decriminalize all bad drugs. And that way we can regulate it and we'll, and we'll be able to save all these. We've got people dying of overdoses left and right. It looks like an opium den in downtown Portland. And so, you know, the promises never get uh, fulfilled. It's just yeah. one broken promise after one broken promise after one broken promise when they talk about bail reform. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's uh, doesn't work. I mean, anywhere they've tried it, you can see it doesn't work. You know, you see uh, people going in in California in the in cities that have decriminalized larceny under a thousand dollars. These guys take their bags in, fill them up, nine hundred ninety-nine dollars, and walk out. You know, and then shortly thereafter, the stores begin to close. Yeah, and the people that really depend on those particular locations to survive now have to get some type of transportation to go somewhere else to get the items that they desperately need. You know, I've been so, saying for a while that, you know, this, what we're seeing now with this crime in our urban areas is not sustainable. I mean, you know, people are like, well, you know, in the last election, you know, it wasn't the big issue it was supposed to be. And I'm like, you know what? It wasn't, but it's not sustainable. I mean, we're going to have a system collapse or we're going to have vigilante justice like we're seeing more and more with people carrying guns. I mean, what is the answer to this bail reform movement? To me, bail reform hurts the people that the powers that be pretend that is helping. 
and that's the very poorest people and the poorest communities. They are the ones that's hurt the most by bail reform in that people commit the crime, they get arrested, and they're right back out on the street to commit the same crime again to torment the people who can't defend themselves. You know, we have a very active association and we are very active at the Texas legislature and we're just kind of going into the session ourselves. But, you know, two sessions ago, we only meet once every two years. So, you know, two sessions ago, six years ago, you know, we would do something we call like a call to action page. So we have a bad bill coming up for a hearing and we would set up an email for each of the uh, members of the committee and we would have a pre a drafted email and we'd, we'd send out that link to everybody. And it was very archaic. It was so backwards. You'd go mm-hmm. click and you'd populate an email, but we got pretty effective at that, but it was all ham program. Last session, we got better and we got somebody to design a system that was a little better. And then the last year and a half, we've spent a lot of time and energy to completely redesign our system. And when we redesigned it, we made it portable so that anyone, any other group can use it. So we're in the process of now implementing it. And, you know, I know a lot of people use Quorum. Uh, we haven't liked that as well because we get saw a lot of pushback from people saying, why am I getting this? But this isn't intended to replace. It's to supplement uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, where you can just specifically target. But we use it for, you know, we do a pre-planned email and then we mm-hmm. do a call to action link. And then we send it out to all of our members. Go here. All they have to do is like click for one or two places. Emails mm-hmm. go to all the committee members. And sometimes we can get people to give us approval. So when we set it up, 200 emails go sent out immediately. And then we've added this little new feature where it's click to dial, which is something that they used in California to fight the last uh, 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 proposition they defeated. And so we thought that was a good idea. So you can have a strike team of like 10 people that they're committed to do the click to dial on each office to say, hey, we, uh, we're calling from the North Carolina a bell agent association, we oppose this bill. Uh, and this, you know, one sentence, why go to the next one. And you mm-hmm. can send that to your membership as well. And so if, and you know, we made it so that any other group can use it. And if y'all ever have the need for that, just, you know, we, we're uh, absolutely willing to make that available to y'all. If y'all think, if y'all would even like to just see it so that it could see if you could use it in the future. And if y'all have something similar like that, let us know. We, I mean, we all about exchanging ideas so that we can become better as a, a group because what's good for the criminal justice system is actually good for the bail industry. Absolutely. But I really like the system you just described. We don't have anything like that, but I, I really like that. That uh, That's effective. Well, if you're ever in need, just get reach out to us and we'll be happy to make that available to you. That's great. That is great. Do well, y'all the- utilize lobbyists? We currently, you know, we're kind of worried about this legislative session. We have uh, PBT has three lobbyists currently, uh, and uh, we have two for the House, one for the Senate. Texas, you know, it, the easiest place to kill a bill is in the House because we have this dichotomy between large counties and small counties because we have 254 counties. And, you know, the small counties like to think, I mean, you know, don't make us have to pay for the big counties' mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we defeat a lot of bills because of that. What else? What and you know, there's a national association as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And there, they have a lobbyist, and I, I, uh, we, I don't know how much coordination there is there. There needs to be more, but yes, we have lots of lobbyists. In fact, I'm going as soon as we're done. I'm going to going to Austin to meet with a legislator and some lobbyists tomorrow. 
our lobbyist is constantly watching for yes. bills that would be detrimental to us. If he sees one, you know, we get on it right away. And uh, we have a know, committee. We, uh, we probably have a large legislative committee of 20 or 30 people, but we mm -hmm. have a subgroup that all they do is file, they review the caption of every bill filed and then mm -hmm. they'll uh, look at search them for key search words. And, uh, and then we have three or four people currently that are probably reading every bill that has a caption that looks like it's anything close to bell related. Uh, and so we have a, a Google drive that's shared with all of our committee members. Uh, and so anyone on our committee can look at what we're tracking. Um, and then we can look at, we create folders. I mean, we have past legislative sessions where we just, it just gets enormous, but we've mm -hmm. become very digitally minded. Uh -huh. I like that. Well, what, where do you think, where do you see the future going right now? I mean, are we still in the middle of this push for reform? Are we at the end of it? Do you think it's kind of waning a little bit? I, I see it waning some. I think I watch a lot of Fox News. You would not believe how many times they talk derogatorily about bail reform. Mm -hmm. Every time there's something on crime in the city of New York, you know, that's where their main office is. You hear them say that shows you bail reform does not work. Uh, I think they've been a great cheerleader for us with bail reform. I agree. But, and, you know, I see a lot of similarities between bail reform and immigration uh, policy. And mm -hmm. when you start seeing the Democrat mayors sending immigrants to Democrat cities, mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, we've got a Democrat mayor in El Paso shipping uh, immigrants to Democrat stronghold cities that are uh, sanctuary cities. You see that more and more, I, you're going to see a, you know, a change in policy. And I think I'm hopeful that we'll see a policy change on criminal justice reform. We have to see something because like I've said already, it's not sustainable. Uh, I agree. But I think enough people are beginning to see that bail reform is not what it was touted to be and that the places where it has been enacted are not that successful with it. Crime is on the increase. So I think that is our best defense. I agree. Well, hey, it's uh, very nice to meet you. And it's great to I mean, learn about North Carolina and see all the great things you're doing. And I'm, I, I can't, I'm excited about the future. I hope we can work together on issues. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, and we'd love to talk about any other issue that you have in the future. Same thing here. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening and come back for the next episode of The Bell Post.